Thanks, Brandon. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Citadel Square if you're new. I know you have a, a question on your mind right now. You said, I didn't know we could wear tangerine pants to church. And let me tell you, we can. And those need batteries to be that orange if you weren't aware. Uh, no, but welcome. Hey, if you're new to Citadel Square, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. We are so happy you could join us. I am so glad I'm not preaching in that little bitty room to one guy like last year. Ah, that feels better, way better. Uh, all right, well, hey, grab your Bibles. Go ahead and find the book of John. We're going to take a look at John chapter 20. The book of John, the gospel of John, is a, it's the gospel you go to to see Jesus interact with people personally. Uh, you have the man born blind in, um, in John. You have the woman at the well in John. You have uh, the Lazarus account in John chapter 11. You have Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night. And all along the, the book uh, of John, you have these encounters where Jesus meets somebody individually. And, and they're very meaningful encounters. And it's similar with the resurrection passages as well. The resurrection passages are sort of grouped into three distinct personal encounters from John 20 forward. And um, I'll tell you how they're laid out. They're laid out in one, two, three. And the third one is the apostle Peter. And Peter, in his encounter with Jesus Christ, gets asked those three questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And in that encounter between Peter, the one who denied Christ three times, and Jesus, you see that the resurrection of Christ has meaning for sinners, that no matter who you are and what uh, kind of life you have lived, when you meet Jesus, Jesus can restore even the most hardened of sinners, the ones who have denied him at their worst. The second one is the one we looked at last year. If you were here last year, we looked at the second encounter between Jesus and Thomas. And he's called Doubting Thomas. And he says to Jesus, or he says to the, the apostles, I will never believe unless I put my hands in his side and my hands into the holes in his hands and feet. And we see there that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is for the skeptic that you can bring your doubts to the resurrection and encounter Jesus who is risen from the dead for you. It's Jesus encountering the skeptic. So you have the sinner, the skeptic, and today we're gonna to look at the very first resurrection encounter. It's the individual that Jesus meets that becomes what some have called the apostle to the apostles. It's the very first uh, Christian message. It's the epicenter of the Christian faith that comes on the lips of Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene in your Bible is mentioned maybe three times. She's mentioned in the group of women who provide for Jesus during his itinerant ministry. She's probably a wealthy individual. She's mentioned uh, in John 19 as a woman who had seven demons uh, cast out from her by Jesus himself. So she has a very significant story of redemption and restoration at the hands of Jesus Christ. And then in John chapter 19, she's described as being at the crucifixion, that she sees the apostles abandon him. 
She sees the soldiers mock and scourge and beat and abuse him. They see, she sees Pilate write, this is king of the Jews, over his head. They see him nailed to the cross and raised up, and she sees the spear goes into his side, and she sees him take his last breath. So she's had this story of walking with Christ that up to this point in the book of John has started with this wonderful restoration And it started with her giving out of her own resources to be able to provide for her Lord, to be able to minister to others. But then we meet her here in John chapter 20, and she's in the grip and the depths of sorrow. You can't preach Easter without Good Friday, can you? that the reality of the crucifixion is just 72 hours ago, isn't it? And it's a hand-in-glove reality to where you have to preach Good Friday where he was nailed to the tree for me. But then as you get to Easter, you preach the glory and the joy of the resurrection, which begs a question. If the resurrected Christ has something to say to sinners, like Peter, and the resurrection... Christ has something to say to skeptics like Thomas. What does the resurrection have to say to women filled with sorrow? Does the resurrection have anything to say to our sorrows? And I'm going to warn you, this, this text begins in grief. It doesn't end there, but it begins with weeping that Mary will be described three different times as weeping. She will be in the depths and in the grips of a sorrow that cannot be shaken. That you'll see even having angels speak to her, she will not see in a literary sense Mary is going to be weeping and she is going to be blind to the reality of what has happened. And here we are in 2021 as we come to our Easter celebration and Resurrection Sunday and our Easter holiday, and I would be remiss and you would be remiss if you didn't recognize that there are certain things that you bring into this place into an Easter Sunday after a year like 2020, and have you seen the news with significant places of sorrow in your heart? Do you have those? where you look at this year, you look at the news, and you look at areas in your life that maybe this is a year where you experience some significant loss, where there was a loss of relationship, or we, there's been loss of spouses in our church this year, that there have been funerals that we've had to do over the course of this year, that there have been loss of dreams and loss of desires and loss of hopes and loss of financial security, loss of peace, loss of stability, loss of security, And I think for some of us, as we come to Easter, you go, does Easter have anything to say to those areas in my life that just feel like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death? And that's this text. So we'll get happy by the end, I promise. (laughs) But we gotta start with what Mary experiences here, okay? 
Let's pray for a second, and we'll jump into this text here together. Father in heaven, we beg that through your spirit and through the preaching of your word that you would give light to our eyes and to the hearts in this room who still know the pain and the raw nerve of going through sorrow. Who right now maybe even are in the valley of the shadow of death. We pray that your word would be the beam of clear light that illumines our darkness. Father, we give thanks for the empty tomb. We give thanks for this text. We give thanks for your word and your spirit that give light to our eyes and help us to understand uh, things about ourselves and things about you when darkness does not lift. So, Father, bless us as we study and as we read. Bless the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 20 starts like this. I'll give you a little bit of a running start because we're going to pick up in the middle of the story in John 20, verse 11. But early morning on the first day of the week, Peter, the women, arrive at the tomb. And the women arrive at the tomb, and the tomb is open and empty, and they rush to tell the apostles what is going on. And Peter and John run to the tomb. And in the first paragraph of John chapter 20, you find out that uh, they're all bewildered and they're all confused. And you also happen to find out that John is faster than Leadfoot Peter, which is a very, like, I don't know why John put that in his gospel, but it just encourages me to know that John likes to let you know that he was faster than Peter. So that he outran him and he made it to the tomb first. Like, I don't know why that's there. That's That's just a happy, like, I'm glad there's a little camaraderie with the disciples in that, don't you? You go, Peter, you're slow, I'm fast, I beat you to the tomb. Well, they all look into the tomb, and they're all bewildered, and they're all confused, right? And then they leave. Peter and John leave. And what you have next is this encounter between uh, death and Mary and angels and Christ. Okay, those are your kind of main characters that you're going to encounter in this text. And Mary... We're going to be introduced to her here, and I told you already who she was, but in John 20, verse 11. So if you got a Bible, are you there? John 20, verse 11, let's, let's look at this text together. It'll be on the screen here behind me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in to the tomb. Uh, every single resurrection encounter and every encounter with the empty tomb is an encounter with fundamentally disbelieving people. You, you kind of hope that there was like that one disciple in the back who goes, ah, I knew it, he's alive. But you don't get that. All the disciples, Mary and all the women, everybody did not have this on their radar. They didn't expect it. They didn't see it coming. They were confused by the empty tomb. They're bewildered by the empty tomb. And here's Mary stooping down to look into the empty tomb. And she's described, as I said, as weeping. Twice in this verse and one more time. She's going to be asked twice why she's weeping. But that we encounter Mary in this story as characterized by the singular emotion of sorrow. That's where she is. And you can imagine what she feels after watching the crucifixion of her Lord. Watching her hopes come to nothing. Watching her come to the tomb expecting to see one thing and seeing something else and being not only sorrowful but also bewildered. And the text begins with this confrontation 
It's a face-to-face between a woman who is weeping, staring into the place of death and not seeing what she thought she would see. So that's the, that's the setting for you and I. She's at the gravestone and she's looking and the, and the gravestone is disturbed and the stone is moved and uh, she's not understand. she's not connecting the dots between her experience and her sorrow. So that Mary, through this text, is from a literary standpoint, you are going to know something about this text before Mary does. Okay, John leads you through the text to show you what is going on so that you and I know more than the characters in the story know. You with me? That's kind of how like, like movies work this way, that, that you know something about the characters, about how they're going to experience something. You see off-screen action that informs the characters in the room, and that's what John is doing for you and me. So this text is instructive for you and I, but it's a moment of discovery for Mary that we're brought into And Mary, you ever heard of the term rose-colored glasses? Do you know what that means? Rose-colored glasses is a a euphemism. It's It's a term that says no matter what situation you look at, you put on these spectacles and everything looks wonderful. Everything looks rosy. Well, in a similar way, Mary is going to have on the spectacles of sorrow. That's not a Harry Potter thing. It's a real, like, That's what I want you to be with me. It's these spectacles that make everything she looks at wash out. And everything she sees just kind of fades to black and white and grays, and there's no color in her life anymore. She can't see any joy at all. Everything in her life is colored by this sorrow. And when you and I encounter death, It is common for our emotional life to be shaken, is it not? Maybe it's not physical death. Maybe you haven't had a lot of those. Maybe you've gone through times in your life where you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death and you you can think right now of gravestones that mark relationships or seasons of life or areas that you look back to and go, there was only death and sorrow and pain there. And Mary, to begin with, as we look at this story, is going to be led out of her sorrow. That she's going to be taken by the hand and led out of her her weakness and her sorrow and her grief by two things, by what she hears and what she sees. That her emotional life is about to be reoriented by truth. And if you have ever been in the grip of sorrow and despair and frustration, then you know how important this encounter is for Mary and how important this encounter will be for you and how important it will be for me. So here's Mary face to face with the empty tomb, bewildered, confused, sorrowful, uncertain, and emotionally a wreck. Look at verse 12. Here's the first thing she sees. She not only sees the empty tomb, but she sees two angels in white. In John, angels never show up until right here. 
They're mentioned in passing, as in maybe an angel spoke to him. But the visible presence of angels don't happen in John until right here. Well, why is that? The angels here are are going to be in reference to two things. Look at what it says. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. These angels here don't give you any amount of didactic teaching material like they did in what we read in Matthew 28, right? In Matthew 28, they go, uh, they tell the people that they're encountering information, Right? He's not here. He has risen. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Go and tell my brothers what is happening, that he will meet you and go ahead of you and greeting and all that kind of stuff. Right? They, they interpret what is going on for you. The angels don't do that here. The angel's presence in the tomb tells you one important thing about the tomb. It tells you that heaven has invaded the place of death that there's a crossroads between something that is so common for humans that our towns are filled with graveyards. And in this grave, heaven has intersected the grave. And there stands heavenly spiritual beings. These beings as angels are described as clothes like lightning, brilliant So that that's their relationship to the tomb and to Jesus, to the, the place of death is now interrupted by heaven. But they also have a intersection between the only under other individual at the tomb at this point. And the angels intercept and intersect the life of a sorrowful, grieving, hopeless woman. It's as if John lets you know that in the grip of sorrow and difficulty and mourning, the only thing that can make sense of it is heaven's perspective. That we need heaven's perspective on death, but we also need heaven's perspective on our sorrows. Would you agree with that? that we need somebody else to tell us what we can't see. We have uh, six kids, five of them are girls, and often we, have, we ask questions that the angels are about to ask Mary, and it's a stupid question. I don't know why I ask this question when my daughters are in the grip of mourning, but I ask my daughters, why are you crying? What has happened? in your life that it is so awful and you are so devastated and it usually ends up being a small, created, fuzzy thing that they can't find or they don't know where it is or that someone gave and they don't have and they want it. It's usually at about 9.30 at night when their defenses are down and they're totally exposed and their raw nerves of emotion and dad, in his wisdom, decides to have rhetorical question time with my daughters, which never works. I don't know why I asked this question. But the angels ask Mary this question. Look at verse 13. 
they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Well, angels, that's a bit of a dumb question, isn't it? Didn't you see the crucifixion two days ago? Didn't you see him beaten and scourged and nailed and stabbed and taken down and wrapped up in cloths and put in the tomb? Don't you know what we've been through? Now, would you agree that when angels ask humans questions, they're not looking for information? I don't think there's any angel up there who's like, boy, I wish I... I wish I could ask Steve a question. So that when angels ask questions, the questions are meant for you to answer, right? The angels are asking Mary a, uh, a invitational question to examine for Mary, for Mary to be able to understand and move out of sorrow. She's got to get to the root of why she's thinking and feeling the way she's thinking and feeling, right? That's the question they ask. Why are you weeping? And you'd expect verse 14 to be, whoa, it's an angel. Wouldn't you? Anybody seen angels this week? I don't think I did. I think if an angel showed up and started asking me questions, I would have a crazy day. It would be a crazy day. But when Mary is encountered by these questions, I want you to see, watch her response. Watch what she says. Because Mary is about to weave a story out of her emotion and her sorrow that makes total sense to her, even when she's being confronted and having a conversation with angels. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them, laid him. Mary, in her sorrow, is putting on these spectacles of sorrow and looking at her situation. And what makes sense to her is not that Jesus has risen from the dead. What makes sense to her is there are nameless, faceless grave robbers who got there earlier than her in the morning, stole the body of Christ, and now she doesn't know how to find the dead body of Christ. Her emotional inner life has created a story more plausible to her than resurrection. You ever do that? You ever get like, you know, when you're driving and you're mad, irrationally mad or irrationally sad and you start building the case where you start looking at life and you go, of course I hit a red light. That's how my life goes. Right? That all of a sudden your whole life is colored by, of course I didn't park close, of course that bill is due, of course my spouse didn't, of course this coffee is awful. The Lord. But Mary's doing it too. She's building this, this case and this story as she looks at this situation and she's looking into the empty tomb and she's crying, angels, get out of the way. The body's gone. I don't... Can you get, don't you guys know what is the, there are grave robbers afoot and you guys are standing there asking dumb questions. But this is so instructive for us. 
that there are times for us when the sorrow and the fog of despair just won't lift and it doesn't matter what counselor is on the other side. It doesn't matter if you are being counseled by angels themselves who are inviting you by their questions to examine your sorrow in light of the truth. Mary is still blind. That everything for her is still dark. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Well, what what kind of Jesus is she looking for? She's looking for a dead wrapped in graves cloths Jesus. She's not looking for standing Jesus. She's not looking for speaking Jesus. She's looking for the Jesus, the dead body of Jesus that I can't find that was stolen. Isn't it interesting that she can't see Jesus right in front of her? You know, this is uh, common in the resurrection appearances. You know, remember in, um, there's a spot in Luke where there's two individuals walking on the road, on the road to Emmaus, it says. And Jesus, like, just kind of walks up next to him, right? And standing there walking along with him, and he's asking, like, simple, like, simple questions. What's been going on? And the disciples are walking, go, don't you know all the stuff that's been happening about Jesus, this prophet who was great in word and deed, and he did all this stuff, and now he's dead, and... Uh, It's been three days, and then we just got a report from some of the women that he's alive, and this is crazy, and what do you mean you don't know what's going on? And you can just imagine Jesus going like, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, uh-huh, oh, really? The women said that, that's amazing. I can't believe Jesus. And then they come, and they ask Jesus to stay with them, and he breaks bread, and and they recognize him, and he disappears from their sight. And they say something that I think is so instructive for us. They say, didn't our hearts burn within us when we talked with him on the road? He was... He was doing something to our hearts to stoke the longing in our hearts to believe that he really was who he says he was. And to this point, Mary has been confronted by the grave. She's been confronted by her sorrow. She's been confronted by this this fairy tale that she can weave out of nothing just from her own perspectives and now she's confronted by angels and now she's confronted face to face with Jesus but doesn't recognize it's Jesus. Look at what Jesus does in verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, why is the question repeated? Because Mary hasn't examined, right? She hasn't gotten, she still hasn't answered that question. And Jesus asks her the question again to make sure that you and I know that he is aiming at the root of her sorrow. He's aiming for her to understand the very foundational element of her sorrow. That if we can scrape away the foundation of your heart, he's aiming at the very deepest center part of who you are. Why are you weeping? Where do your emotions come from? And then he asks a second question that helps us to interpret the first question. Here's the first question, why are you weeping? The second question, whom are you seeking? Now, just like the angels, when Jesus asks questions, Jesus never is at a loss for information. Jesus is teaching by his question asking 
So that he's asking, first, why are you weeping? Where, what is the source of this emotional trauma in your life? What loss is informing the emotional experience of your life? If you want to grow, spiritually speaking, you need to be in tune to your emotional life. Because your emotional life is like, I know we're all put together and we come to church and we're all dressed up and it's all nice and good, but your emotional life is super, super honest about you. And when you inordinately feel something, anger, joy, sadness, peace, they're coming out of a visceral, foundational level of who you are. And what Jesus does is connect the foundation of who we are to a, watch this, to a whom, not a what. From time to time in our church, I will hear stories that will kind of bounce around people in our church and bounce around to our staff, and then eventually they make their way into my office. And I don't know if they're true at that point. It's like playing telephone. But I hear stories of people who have come to our church, and they come in the midst of difficulty and emotional trauma, where hopes have been wrenched in their hearts. And they come into our church, and I'll hear these stories of people who come in, and they sit in the back, and they weep their way through a service. And the first thing I think of every single time is, it was that bad? We ought to try to do something different. But after I prod and I push a little bit, I find out that in the midst of their trauma and difficulty and sadness and hardship and through the preaching of the word and the ministry of our body as we sing about the truth of Jesus Christ, their hearts begin to heal and they begin to meet Jesus and understand Jesus at some of the deepest places of their sorrow and hardship and difficulty and trauma. And that's not me. That's people in the depth of their sorrow being intersected by the word of Christ. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is making sure that as he clears the fog of sorrow away, he's helping Mary understand something incredibly important about who she is. That there's a way for your life not to be characterized by sorrow, but by joy. That that, because of the resurrection, is really possible for you and me. Now look at what it says, the remainder of the verse. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this is a little bit, I, I think John, John's a little sassy, I feel like, at the end of his gospel. You know, he already beat Peter in the foot race, and he's, he puts this in here, and he goes, supposing him to be the gardener. Now, you got to laugh at that, don't you? That it starts with the body is gone, and then it's Jesus is standing, and then Jesus is speaking, and then he's the gardener. It's just amusing to me that uh, it's laughable, but anybody in the grip of sorrow can recognize that there are times when I don't see clearly, right? That there are times when he must be the gardener. Makes total sense in our sorrow, doesn't it? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. 
Mary still has not moved from her sorrow. She is willing to continue with life as it is, and Jesus be dead, and me go and care for his body and make sure he's buried correctly and do all the things that I need to do to care for the dead body. She can't move on. You know, we aren't a church and you aren't a Christian without the resurrection. Paul, the apostle in some of his writings, talks about this. And he says, if Christ is not raised, then we have been proven to be false apostles. We have been proved to be misrepresenting God. That God would have lied about this whole process. And not only that, we are of most people all to be pitied. That Christians are an embarrassment because they're all duped. And he says, if that's the case, we should eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how serious the resurrection is. If the resurrection is not true, you should go make more money than you're making right now to eat better food. You should hit halls weekly, live it up, or twice a week if you can afford that. That's why you need to make more money. And then you go to halls, you eat like crazy, you live your life, you drink it down, and you go to the grave, and that's all there is because there's no resurrection. But the church is built upon the epicenter of the resurrection, on the tomb being empty. And the resurrection is not merely a historical event that happens in time and space. It is that. It's not merely a theological event that helps to interpret for us how sinful men can be reconciled to a holy God through the perfect substitutionary atonement of the God-man Jesus Christ. Though it is that too. But in this text, and importantly so in this text, it is a profoundly personal truth. You may feel like the resurrection is way out there somewhere and it really has no bearing on your day-to-day life. But for a woman who is in the grips of grief and sorrow, who has seen her Lord crucified, dead, and buried, this is a profoundly personal reality. How do I know? Well, I know because of what happens in verse 16. Up to this point, angel, the empty tomb cannot free Mary from her sorrow. Up to this point, angels cannot free Mary from her sorrow. Up to this point, practically bumping into the risen Christ and thinking him being to be the gardener does not free Mary from her sorrow. There's one thing that frees Mary from her sorrow, and it's verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. He says one word. And he shows that in the midst of her sorrow, he knows her name. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as you journey through the valley of the shadow of death that Jesus Christ knows your name? That he knows right where you are. 
You know, when you encounter Jesus in the book of John and he encounters death, it's, it, it's so instructive for us when he raises Lazarus, right? He comes, he waits for Lazarus to die. He makes his way to the place. Everybody's weeping. Everybody is torn apart. He sees the tomb and Jesus himself weeps, right? That Jesus, when he encounters weeping people who are in the grip of sorrow, he never says, well, why don't you guys suck it up? I'm Jesus. He never says, get over it. He's just dead. When Jesus says Mary's name, it shows us that when you and I experience these gravestone moments in our lives, when we experience these these moments of death, these little bitty deaths, these little bitty disappointments, this, little, this loss of relationship and stability and security and a season of life that I thought would be different and now I'm discouraged by it and what is God gonna do with it and I, I'm just in the grip of sorrow. Jesus' words to Mary let us know that he knows right where you are. That he knows your name. So that when you encounter Jesus in those moments, you don't have Jesus blowing you off. You don't have Jesus reinterpreting it. You don't have uh, Jesus telling you to be stronger. You have a Jesus who goes, me too. I know right where you are. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's an intensified form of the word rabbi. It's a, it's a very personal teacher. You know, you could probably, you could go to 500 other churches. And there's a way to teach this text that I think does disservice to the text. Because we could stop at this point and I could make all sorts of promises about those gravestone areas in your life and how God's gonna redeem them and they're gonna be different and things are gonna change. And it, your 21 is going to be different than your 20, and, and it would be great preaching. But it doesn't reflect this text very well. Because this text is an argument uh, from the greater to the lesser. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. In the next 50 to 100 years, you will face the loss of a spouse, the loss of health, the loss of your hearing, the loss of your sight, the loss of your body functioning the way it needs to. You may face the loss of a child. You may face the loss of a dream. You may face the loss of hopes that life may not turn out the way you think it will. We all in this room have this perspective. We think life is always gonna go up and to the right. But the reality is at some point you will come face to face with the grave. And the people who know you and love you in the next hundred years will forget your name altogether. And death will take it all. So the question is, what does the resurrection have to say to sorrowful people? The question even further is what do you have right now that death can't take away?
that is so secure and so certain that it doesn't, uh, that, that you are able to travel through the doorway of death and have it be untouched? And the answer to that question is the hope of this passage. At this point, the tone turns. There is no more weeping anymore. She recognizes Jesus for who he is, that he is the one who has risen from the grave for her. And the answer to the question, what do you have that death can't take away, is in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, which means there's one more thing that Jesus needs to do to make sure that you are sealed and safe in heaven. And he must ascend, proving that God has accepted the sacrifice on the cross. If he's still walking around, we're not sure what God thinks of Jesus. If Jesus ascends, then Jesus is received into heaven, making sure that you and I know that the sacrifice worked. Now watch this. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. This is the only place in the book of John where anybody else has the right to call God Father. It begins John chapter 1. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. In John chapter 8, it said of Jesus that he was making himself equal with God by calling God his Father. And that everybody now thinks that this person should be crucified. By the end of the book of John, Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren who have the right and the authority and the audacity to call God their dad. There are six people on this planet who have the audacity to be able to come into my house, eat my food, sleep in my beds, leave stuff around my house with total impunity. Molly, Tessa, Avery, Joel, Kate, and Charlotte are the only people on this planet who have the right to call me dad. Nobody else does, only them. And what Jesus has won for you and for me in the resurrection is that he has won for you a relationship with your heavenly father to where now you have the authority to call God my God, to call your father in heaven my father, and that will never be taken away from you. I don't care what you lose. You are forever and always in Jesus a child of God. Amen? That is what he has won for us. That's why her weeping has stopped because she recognizes and lays hold of the fact that he is who he said he was and he did what he said he will do and he replaces the foundation of her life not with sorrow and grief but replaces it with rejoicing. And out of that joy, she becomes the very first, what uh, some have called the very first apostle to the apostles. She's the very first sent one. She's just like the woman at the well in John 4, who runs into the city to say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, meaning and still accepts me for who I am. She's like the garrison demoniac who after having legions of demons cast out of him wants to get into the boat with Jesus and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Go back to your family and friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And that's how the text ends. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. What couldn't she see at the beginning of the text? She couldn't see anything because of her sorrow. There's one singular thing 
that has the power to reorient your suffering, to reorient your sorrow. It's that Jesus knows my name. And out of that safety and security in being called a child of God, that she now has a message to proclaim that Jesus is alive. The place of her sorrow has now become the place where she is sent. That her life is now altogether different. She's gone from looking into the tomb, looking into her loss, looking into her sorrow and interpreting everything else based upon that sorrow to looking to Christ and interpreting everything else in the light of Jesus Christ and his love for her. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christians are not groups of people who gather together on Sunday and sing songs about ourselves. Right? Me, me, and how hard I try. Me, me, I do so good. Me, it's not us. We sing about Jesus who did stuff for us because we didn't deserve it. We sing about Jesus because it's our sin that nailed him to the tree. We sing about Jesus because he died the death I should have died and drank the cup of wrath that I should have drank and then went to the tomb, died, buried, rose again, and now receives me with himself before the heavenly Father. So that Christians come and reorient our sorrows on a weekly basis by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, by coming together and encouraging and building one another up in the word of Christ by reminding one another that he is risen, that your sins are forgiven, that you can be a child of God who has the audacity to call God your father. And now in the very deepest part of who you are, he can take sorrow away and replace it with joy. Father in heaven, what a truth this text shows us. how good you are, how kind and tender you are to come to a woman in the grip of sorrow, to challenge her perspective on life and her emotions and the way they, they see life and to call her by name, to invite her into the reality of being a child of God. How beautiful this is to know that you have risen from the dead for us that our life, as Paul says in Colossians, is hidden with Christ in God. How wonderful this is. How much joy there is in our hearts over the fact that you know our names. And for those, Father, this morning who bring in seasons of sorrows to where all they can see is the tomb, I pray that they would know the comfort and the joy of the fact that you have overcome the grave. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that we can sing and celebrate in his name. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.